Testament story, Elijah was a righteous prophet who faced a spineless king by the name of Ahab and a furious queen by the name of Jezebel. So the readers of this story would see Elijah in John, King Ahab and King Herod, and they'd hear the voice of Jezebel in the strident voice of Herodias, and both women seize the opportunity to silence the moral judgment of the prophet. Now, there's some characteristics about John that, and this account that speak to the church today, and I call these unpopular, unfamiliar themes, themes we don't hear a lot about. I, I don't preach a lot about these. Uh, you go in a Christian bookstore, you probably won't see a lot of books on these matters, but these are some themes that I believe are very important for the church. And one is the prophetic role of the church. Often when we hear the word prophet, we think of telling the future, but the majority of the prophet's work was really not about the future, it was about the present. The prophet spoke the word of God, often in the midst of cultures that were deteriorating, caught in an immoral slide. The prophets warned people that God will not close his eyes to evil. John came preaching repentance. He said, you need to turn from your ways and change. And he was blunt. He called Pharisees and Sadducees a bunch of snakes. He said, if you don't produce good fruit, you'll be cut down. And then he warned about Jesus, said, the one who comes after me has a winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up shaft with the unquenchable fire. John's just an old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone preacher. Preach the truth no matter who he offended, no matter what the consequences. And he was bold enough not only to take on the religious authorities, he also took on the secular authorities like Herod, who was a, in an illegal, immoral marriage, And John spoke out against it boldly. Peter Cartwright was a 19th century circuit-riding Methodist preacher, and he was told one Sunday that President Andrew Jackson was in the congregation, and Peter Cartwright was warned to be careful of what he said. When Cartwright stood up to preach, he said, I understand that Andrew Jackson is here. I've been requested to be be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. That's John the Baptist type stuff. And we've got to understand, there's two roles of the church, two primary roles. First is the priestly role, uh, and this we're more comfortable with. We're go-between, between God and people. The Latin word for priest is bridge builder. A priest builds bridges between people and God. He lets people know that God loves them. And so we proclaim grace and forgiveness and reconciliation and to bring people to God. That's one role. The other is the prophetic role that we're not is comfortable with. And that's pointing out wrongdoing, proclaiming truth, even when it hurts. There is a holy and just God. There is a right and there is a wrong. And God will not let sin go on forever. There will be a day of reckoning. Evil will be conquered. And that's all good news, by the way, unless you're on the bad side, on the wrong side, uh, on the side of evil. Um, We could go back about 50 years, uh, actually 60, 70 years now. Sorry about that. We go back to the church in Nazi Germany, and uh, some churches, in fact, several churches supported Hitler. And you wonder, how? How could they be sucked in to support Adolf Hitler? Well, when Hitler came to power, church attendance went up. He supported the churches, used them. And churches largely supported him, blinded, of course, to the atrocities of millions of innocent lives being killed. Now, not all churches did. Some were prophetic. They spoke out, and they paid for it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one, losing his life for being a prophet. And I sometimes wondered, you know, 70 years down the road uh, about the American church, what will they say about us? 
And I, I don't know how many lives are killed each year by abortion, and the church is largely quiet. Yeah, some have spoken out, but not many. And how many believers are being persecuted around the world, and the American church just stands pat? You know, preachers getting paid, the attendance is good. Don't want to upset things too much. I wonder what history will say about us. Louis L'Amour, in his book, Last of the Breed, said, There are good men everywhere. I only wish they had louder voices. Every culture needs the prophetic voice. It's a lot easier to proclaim the love of God and the grace of God and the kindness of God, and everybody likes to hear that, the make me happy God and the bless me God. But when we neglect the holiness of God, we make him into something he isn't. Prophets by nature are unpopular. Darkness can't stand the light. But God has a role for the prophetic. It was a prophet that steered King David back on course. It was a prophet that led Israel away from idolatry and back to God. It was the prophet William Wilberforce that ended slavery in Britain. God's people and society needs the prophetic voice of truth. Second, unfamiliar, unpopular theme is that of martyrdom. I've never heard a sermon on martyrdom. Uh, I've never preached a whole sermon on it. We want sermons on how to have joy and how to raise kids and how to overcome depression, and that's fine and dandy, but sermons on actually physically dying for Jesus Christ. We'd rather not talk about beheading. It's just not a popular sermon topic. I don't think we'd ever want to put out on our marquee, come and learn about beheading, you know, although it's all over the news today, of course. But John's death was ugly. Hit on a platter, and it was even uglier because it was unjust. He was beheaded for doing right. Is undeserved death a bad way to die? Is that a bad finish? When Socrates was about to drink the poison, one of his pupils named Apollodorus cried out, I grieve most for this, Socrates, that I see you about to die undeservedly. Socrates was an old man, but his sense of humor and active as ever. And with a smile, he said, My dearest Apollodorus, would you rather see me die deservedly? Martyrdom is dying for just cause. Is that a bad way to die? Now, we just finished, yesterday's Valentine's Day, wasn't it? Yeah, okay. Day of love, romance. I've never seen a Valentine card with John the Baptist on it. Just not a real romantic guy, pretty gruff. And he did not approve of every romance, didn't approve of this one between Herod and his sister-in-law. He was so judgmental. And getting ready for the sermon, I was listening to some commercials for Valentine's Day, and one thing I noticed is that 90% of them are aimed at men which doesn't seem fair to me at all. And then some of the themes and messages that I hear is give her the right flowers and she'll give you what you want. Or you'll get brownie points. Or if you don't give her the right flowers, you'll be in the doghouse. These are actually little words I've heard this week. And, of course, there's the Fifty Shades of Grey teddy bear. Uh, And then there was a commercial where, guys, do you want to dominate this Valentine's Day? And I asked myself, is this love? If you have to do something to get something or dominate, I, I don't know. Now, I'm all for romance. I'm a romantic guy. I took Ellen out last night. We went to Culver's and then, seriously, went to, we watched a movie. We rented a movie. and uh, No, we actually checked it out of the library. It was free. It's even better. Uh, cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. You ever seen that one? <laughs> now, the Bible says if you want a real Valentine's Day... No greater love is there than to give flowers. No, no, than to what? Die for someone. Real love is not about brownie points. 
Love is a willingness to die for someone else. John the Baptist was a true lover. He died for his God. Some of you would die for your family. The martyrs loved Jesus because they died for him. Martyrdom in the early uh, church was a very real thing, and some interesting things came out of it. Some believers honored the day of the martyr's death, and they actually considered the martyr's death day as his birthday. It's the day of their new life in Christ beginning in heaven, you know. Some early Christians taught that martyrdom was a guarantee of salvation, which is probably going too far. In fact, the connection between heaven and martyrdom was so strong that the early church had a hard time holding back some voluntary martyrs, men and women who deliberately provoke the authorities or even throw themselves on the stake just for the sake of Christ. They wanted to be martyred because they thought that was a good way to die. Of course, martyrdom is happening in our culture today. I mean, in our society, in our world today. It's happened all through history. We know of Christians who've been crucified on the mountains of Sudan. We know of seven missionary children in Colombia have watched Marxist guerrillas throw their fathers into a truck, drive them off, and a year later they were found dead. Lizzie Atwater, a young American woman in China at the turn of the 20th century, was waiting to be executed. And she scratched a note to her sister saying, They beheaded 33 of us last week in Taiwan. Ecuador, 1956, the pilot of a low-flying search plane made its way along the Karari River and spotted one of five missionaries' bodies lying face down in the water. In Buta, 1964, 31 priests are stripped naked and bound together before they are marched to the riverbank where they are hacked to pieces and their corpses thrown into the river. Of course, we read about ISIS systematically beheading children in Iraq. They are killing every Christian they see, says one Chaldean leader. Now, I know this is gruesome and not popular, and we'd say that's not the way I want to die, but is it a bad way to die, dying for Christ? Mike last week quoted Paul, said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Martyrs more than anyone attest to the truth of that conviction. And the key to Paul's statement is the first half, For me to live is Christ. If your motto is, for me to live is my career, then death is not gain. For me to live is my children or my grandchildren, death is a tragedy then. It's a loss. For me to live is money, possessions, entertainment, sports, whatever, death is not gain. It, it strips all that away. The only way we can say debt to die is gain is to say, for me to live is Christ. The message of repentance in a hostile world is usually met with hostility, and some people will die physically for their faith. Third, unfamiliar, unpopular theme from John here. Sometimes our service to Christ is not rewarded, not in this life. There's a theme that I often preach, and I often hear it preached, and I believe it is basically true, that if you do what's best and do what's right, do it God's way, you'll tend to be better off. And I've often told people, you stay the course and God will bless you. And that's true. But not always. John stayed the course. He was holy, he was a righteous man. In all of Scripture, nothing negative is ever said about John the Baptist. Some thought he was the Messiah. In fact, Jesus himself said, no one is greater than John. So this is a good man who does not live happily ever after in this life. When Christians go through some kind of injustice, I'm not sure we can say, oh, it'll be all right. It'll work out. And often it does. But it might not, at least not in this life. John is a real problem for people who say, it'll be okay. He's righteous and he's holy and he's dead. Throughout his life, he wore camel hair and ate bugs. It just doesn't sound like a very good life, much less a good death. 
See, we've equated being saved with being safe. God's going to take care of us. He's going to protect us. He'll make it better. The American dream type of thing. Mm, Not necessarily. Now, God uses injustice and unfairness. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of Christianity in many places. The church often grew out of their deaths. God used those sacrifices, but he didn't necessarily spare them. Along with that, there are parallels between Jesus and John throughout this text. Both of them were itinerant preachers. Both preached repentance in the coming kingdom. Both baptized. Both were called prophets. Both were popular with the people and unpopular with the authorities. Both died innocently the hands of reluctant political leaders. In fact, right before our text, down in ver- back in verse 14, King Herod thought Jesus was John come back to life. I mean, these two were so similar. And Herod said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So Herod saw the parallels between Jesus and John. Another parallel was Herodias seized an opportune time to get John, the same way Jesus, a Judas sought an opportune time to get Jesus. Also, just as Herod was caught off guard by the response to his reckless offer, so Pilate was surprised by his reckless offer to release a prisoner with Jesus. Lots of parallels. So it's not just by his words that John was the forerunner to Jesus. His life and his death prepares the way for the Lord. Even in his martyrdom, John is a forerunner to Jesus. So when we sing, I want to be like Jesus, in some ways we're singing also, I want to be like John. And we're not singing about just being nice. We're singing about dying. We're singing about dying for, maybe not martyrdom, but dying to ourselves, dying to getting our way, dying to selfishness and narcissism. Jesus said, if you want life, you want to follow me, you die. Tony Campolo tells of a conference of Mennonites Now, Mennonites are historically pacifist in their uh, feelings about war. And anyway, there was a conference and there was a discussion as to whether the pacifist position was still viable throughout their church. And there was an elderly gentleman there who owned a huge farm and had a lot of wealth and a lot to lose. And he was very much in favor of the Mennonites abandoning their historic pacifist position and recognize that there might be circumstances in which Christians could engage in war. Now, I'm not a pacifist, but... The discussion that this older man had with a younger man of of the Mennonites, I think, is illuminating. The younger man, who was a pacifist, challenged the views of this elderly man, defending pacifism. And the older man said, well, it's all right for you to talk in this lofty manner, but one of these days, they may come and take everything you have. And the young man responded, this poses no problem for me. You see, sir, when I became a Christian, I gave everything I have to Jesus. And if they come and only take from me what belongs to Jesus, that is Jesus' problem and not mine. The older man said, all right, so they can't take what you have because you've already given it to Jesus, but they can make you suffer. Once again, the young man answered, when that day comes, I hope I'll remember the words of Jesus who said, blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in frustration, the older man finally said, but they can kill you. And the young man answered, no, they can't. You see, sir, I'm already dead. When I became a Christian, the life that belongs to this world came to an end, and the new life that I received in Christ can never be snuffed out. Now, again, I'm not a pacifist, but I think there's, I think there's times when war is necessary. But I'll say this, that that young man's attitude is what made the early church such a dangerous threat to their society of their day. You couldn't take anything away from them. They'd already given it all to Christ. They'd already died, and in so doing, had life. Martyrdom 
is a part of following the way of the Lord. We are all called to die. And for me to die is gain. But the only way I can say that is that for me to live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, when we look at